Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg with another episode of Flick City. I have a couple of films for you guys that may be coming out. That oh well, one is already out. Another one is coming out on Friday. Okay. The first movie that I have, without further ado, is a film called Hellbender. And if you haven't heard about this movie, it's a very interesting film. It's available on D- VOD, digital, HD, and DVD as we speak, and you can actually stream it on Shutter if you have that service as well. Now, I'm just gonna quickly read you the plot summary okay it's a horror thriller but ultimately it's a relationship a relationship story between a mother and daughter and it's true to life because the movie is shot by this uh, unit called the adams family they call themselves the adams family because they're a family of filmmakers okay so anyways here's the plot summary for this izzy leads an isolated life locked away from the world by her protective mother who has convinced her she has a chronic illness. After sneaking into town, Izzy plays a cruel drinking game with a new friend that unleashes a deep-rooted taste for blood. Okay, so that's it. Izzy is played by Zelda Adams. Okay, Zelda Adams is the daughter of Toby Poser and and also John Adams. Toby Poser plays the protective mother in Hellbender. And John Adams is the filmmaker behind this movie. So it's a very interesting unit, filmmaking unit. And it's, it's one of these things. It's like, who's, who's directing? Who's writing? Who's acting? Who's, who's holding the boom mic? Who's doing this? Who's holding the camera? It, who, who knows? It, 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 I'm assuming the, the kind of, uh, jobs are interchangeable. Also, Lulu plays the quote unquote new friend who becomes buddies with, with Izzy. And yeah, so ultimately, it's a, a very interesting mystical witch story about the a young girl who does not know how powerful she is or can be. And because of her just possible, I guess, powers of destruction, her mother understandably wants to keep her under lock and key under the home. Now, I really love the personal approach to Hellbender. The, during the interviews, during the interview, um, Toby Poser and John Adams talk about how they shot in natural light, shooting out in nature and the elements. And with hardly basically any money, it's not like they're making a 50 to $100 million movie from Disney or Universal Studios or Universal Pictures or or any of the big studios, or not even having a, a budget of just like twenty to thirty million. They, it's basically DIY financing, DIY, DIY, DIY financing, and filmmaking, and it's something that I really appreciate. I appreciate it even more because the actual visual compositions of this film, it's atmospheric. There are some, there are some moments in this movie that are beautiful to look at on screen as well. And ultimately, the power of this movie centers on the relationship between the mother, played by Toby Poser, and again, the daughter, the aforementioned Zelda Adams. I did not have Zelda Adams in for this interview, but it was great to have her parents, Toby Poser and John Adams, for this interview for Hellbender. So it's a really cool film. Again, if you love indie films, but on top of that, if you love movies shot in natural light, shot within within uh, the elements of nature, mother nature, as well as, I mean, for, for example, there is a whole different, I mentioned this in, in the interview, there's a segment where they, the mother and daughter come across, I believe the carcass of an animal, I think it might be a deer, and they actually really came across that carcass. So what they did was they actually said, hey, let's use this for our film. So it's really interesting on a, from a filmmaking story and storytelling level, how their creative process is really born 
a lot of it is born out of just the lives they lead, just maybe on their daily walk or their daily travels within their, their surrounding environment. I believe they live somewhere up in New York, up in up in uh, just, uh, I, I'm not going to say the boondocks, but out in the, the middle of nature, which as a city slicker, I have no idea. I, I can barely, I don't even go to, the, go to my backyard and uh, I'm terrified by the side of grass. So I'm a horrible human being. Woe is me on that. But now... Now, uh, what's interesting about Hellbender is, for me, I can actually live vicariously via this film by looking at all the beautiful pieces of nature and then seeing all the Hellbender stuff that's in this movie, the hellish special effects and interplay between the mother and daughter and what goes on. It's a very intimate, really cool film. Also, the music. There's a group in this movie called Hellbender, and it's really awesome. I actually listen to their music on my Spotify playlist. So that is my first interview with Toby Poser and... And uh, and John Adams, they are really, really cool. And my second interview is for this film called Collide. And the interview is with the director, and his name is Makunda Michael Dewell. And he's an interesting filmmaker because when you look at something like Collide, it's an interesting movie. It's, it's, it's rated R, 90 minutes. It's a thriller, and it's set in real time. It's a set in a Los Angeles restaurant, and... There are several couples who are whose lives hang in the balance because of one night in this restaurant. There's a lot of different things. There's a rich man named Hunter, played by Ryan Philippi. He is on a blind date, and, and what happens is his blind date, her name is Tamara, and she's played by Kat Graham. What happens is when he meets Tamara, she threatens him and she says you cannot get out of your seat because there is a bomb under your seat if you get out of your seat the whole place will explode everyone will die in the restaurant that's one of the segments in this movie that's set up I've never hurt anyone what about junior mother king they, 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 they don't know we don't know who did that 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 that, 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 that. That pickup, that was a farm truck. Anybody could have been driving it. He's six years old. Dragged behind that car until he died. We don't know what happened. You can't blame me for that, please. It was it was dark out there. He never stops. Blood begets blood. Hearts harden. Until we don't even feel anymore. I remember... My little niece so hard her nose bled. Us, so angry. She spilled food on her shirt. It's a shirt we put her in because we were going into the city. God forbid we look like poor blacks. You can only be treated like an animal for so long. Do you start? There's also a a busboy played by Dylan Flashner. He is he found I believe cocaine. He's he's found cocaine, and what happens is his girlfriend, who also works with him, she has big news to tell him. But he has news to tell her regarding hey, we might be in for a lot of money with this big cocaine score. But we all know drug deals usually don't end up, especially within the realms of cinema, end in a very good state for a lot of people. 
And there's also Jim Gaffigan. You know, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian as, and also sometimes as a, as a serious dramatic actor. He's a very good, uh, talented actor. He plays Peter and Peter played by Jim Gaffigan. He's actually not in the restaurant. He's outside the restaurant spying on his, his wife. Okay. And who is cheating on him. So you don't know what he's going to do because he is stewing outside the restaurant, tracking his wife. And you might be thinking, while wow, there is a bomb in the restaurant that Ryan Phillippe's, Phillippe's character is really, uh, he's obviously fearful of the situation. Maybe that guy played by Jim Gaffigan has something up his sleeve as well. And maybe he is, he might actually, I guess he might incite a violent encounter in that restaurant as well. So there's all a bunch of strangers, all intersecting stories all shot in real time captive it's all captured in real time and collide interesting film and especially if you like genre thrillers you might enjoy this movie as well that movie being collide but what's interesting is for this interview Makunda Michael Dewell I interviewed him and we took it a completely different route because I was interested in learning about his personal journey as a filmmaker. He's the idea that he spent not the idea the fact that he spent several years in India at an at an ashram it's completely foreign to me and asked him about that and how that applied to his storytelling. So he has a different viewpoint on how and why he wants to make movies. Obviously, through the lens of a genre, through genre entertainment, he hopes to bring and shed more light on just different, most important themes that affect us on a daily basis. Whether or not that works is up to you. We'd love to hear what you think of Collide, collide not Collide, or Collide as well. And Collide specifically is in theaters on August 5th, and also it will be on demand the following week on August 12th. The aforementioned actors, Jim Gaffigan, Ryan Philippi, and also Drea DiMatteo from The Sopranos is here, is in the film. Paul Ben Victor, a character actor I really love. David James Elliott, who you might know from JAG, is also in this movie. Really interesting film. And if you like that that idea of you know, that ticking time bomb within a thriller trope, it might appeal to you. And also the actors, there's some really good performances in this movie from Ryan and especially Kat and Jim Gaffigan. It's a role I've never seen him before too. He's very unhinged in this movie. So it's an interesting interview with Makunda Michael Dewell as well. I'm going to start off with my interviews with Toby Poser and John Adams first for Hellbender. And then I'm going to go right into the interview with Makunda with Collide. If you see these movies, we'd love to hear what you think of Hellbender. Again, available on VOD, digital and DVD, as well as Shutter and Collide in theaters August 5th and on demand August 12th. I'm smashing these two cinematics episodes close together because I, I, re, I recorded earlier this week, actually on Wednesday, with Eric and Bruce. Eric Holmes and Bruce Perky, we do a, a preview of the first two weeks of this month, what you can expect to watch th- this month, what are some good choices. And unfortunately, I did not pick Collide. And there's so many movies. And Hellbender. I should have mentioned both movies for the previews as far as recommendations. But there's just so many movies to cover. And I just wanted to sneak these these two films in before I actually release the preview episode on Friday. Okay? So here are the interviews. Thank you, listeners. Thank you so much for, for um, supporting me and Anderson on cinematics and listening to these interviews. Anderson will be back in a couple of weeks. And also, most importantly, I've been working on a project. I'm not going to repeat it because you're going to hear in depth what that project is regarding findyourfilms.com. And that will be in the next full cinematics episode, which is releasing on fr- again on Friday. So I'm not going to have to, I don't want to repeat myself and bore you to death regarding what I want to do regarding cinema and everything like that and websites. But Yes, most importantly, 
collide, Hellbender, give me your thoughts. Did you hate it? Did you not? Do you not want to watch them? Et cetera, et cetera. Email me at info at findyourfilms.com. Thanks again for your support on Cinematics. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Let me record right now. Okay, yeah. So how organic was it for both of you just to shoot out in the middle of nature? Because for me, with a tree and out of the nature, I, I think I'd probably last 20 minutes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm horrible at it, but it seems so organic for both of you. Is that is nature a huge part of what both of you do um, on an aesthetic level cinematically? Yes, uh, with a capital Y. Um, we love shooting in nature. First of all, technically, we don't use uh, artificial. We tend to not use artificial lights. We don't own any professional lights. So we really count on nature to do a lot of the heavy lifting light-wise. Um, and it's just beautiful, natural light. And we also live in a very rural area where we're surrounded by nature. It has a huge influence on us, not only visually, but thematically. Um, you know, in our last two films, Hellbender, and also The Deeper You Dig, nature just played a big role in, in um, you know, emphasizing the brutality, but beauty of nature. Yeah, and she's uh, she's our fourth character, you know, always. Like, nature is a huge character that always shows up with something completely original, and we just try to keep up with her. Yeah, I think one of the scenes, I was reading some of the, your interviews, your past interviews. Can you guys just talk about how the nature actually informs the storytelling? I'm thinking about the, I think it's a deer carcass that's out there, and yeah. you guys discovered. How, how did that story come about and building that sort of segment around that, which I thought was very Actually, in a, in a weird way, it's, it's a very important part of the, the narrative. Yeah, well, that was interesting because we were actually just taking a hike to look for a location for another scene. And we came across this uh, deer carcass and Toby was like, you know what? This could be a great opportunity for us to shoot a scene that basically summarizes the point of this movie because – it, it was just perfect and it was just sitting there and we had to go get a stepladder and, and we had to get our sound equipment. And that's what's nice about being a film crew of three is if you see something, whether it's a storm rolling in or a nice desert vista or a deer that's just been torn apart by coyotes, we can film it in five minutes. And that was um, and that scene was one of those examples where it was 20 minutes because I had to go get a ladder. But other than that, we just shot that. <laughs> Speaking of just shooting it, what's the key? And I, I guess this answer would, could probably take an hours to, to answer, but why do some movies that are budgeted at fifty to one hundred million dollars look cheaper and poorly executed than Hellbender? What's the key with whatever budget you guys have to work with it and make it look like you don't use the budget as an excuse to not shoot a beautiful looking movie? What's the key to actually getting that you know out there? Beautiful compliment. Thank that you. is that 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 just I think made our month yes year maybe I think it's tricky playing around with digital effects and I think it's also tricky playing around with a budget like we uh, you know we've worked with um, big crews and obviously there's beautiful movies shot with big crews but there's also the danger of so many different people um, maybe not working in unison. And I think one of the nice things about us being just this tiny crew and relying on nature so much is we are kind of one mind and we're just trying to capture um, things that are honest. And we don't, I mean, we really stay within the bounds of our abilities, I would say. Like we have a very simple camera, the Canon 5D, which we've always used from the get-go for the past 12 years, just just various iterations of the Canon 5Ds. We're maybe on our fourth or fifth. And um, 
we think it looks good. And we just make sure we, we don't settle for less than what we think is re- at this point, having made seven features, we really make sure what we're doing is the quality we want. And we find that completely within the bounds of um, with this canon. I would say something else that's interesting that I feel sorry, not sorry for, like, 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 um, but I think it's got to be hard for big movie houses to shoot movies because they have a schedule that they have to follow. They have to shoot something in eight hours. They're paying their actors. They're paying their crew. It's whatever they get. It's done. We go home sometimes and our footage sucks. So we just go right back to the same spot and we figure out why it sucks and we can shoot it five times. You know, and and that there's an advantage there. Sometimes I feel bad for big studios. They have one shot to do it, and that's it. Uh, look, I'm not I'm not a parent, but I, I'm a I'm an uncle, and I'm very close to my my niece. I helped raise her. She's five years old, and right now she she loves obviously Disney Plus and Fancy Nancy. How do I how do I turn her? I, I'm gonna say, how, do I, how do I transform her into a cinephile? Because you know Zelda does such a great job in in this movie, and you guys have really helped nurture her cinematic and creative career. Obviously, a lot of it is on her own initiative as well. What do I do to like maybe one day? Oh, Claire, here is this is a silent film called M. It's directed by Fritz Lang. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is called German Expressionism. The, how did you guys do it just organically and not shoving it down just to, your, 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 your your most loved ones, you know? You say, let's watch Cinderella and you put in the VHS. Say, oh, oops, this is The Exorcist. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What if you do like a little like, you show me your movie and now I'll show you mine. <laughs> I think that's what that how Lizard eventually saw Carrie. Because she's like, let me show you this cool little like uh you know a teeny bopper movie i was like okay and then i was like can i show you something and then i showed her carrie and she totally dug it but those guys both of our girls they they showed us some pretty you know these days kids are on the internet seeing lots of wild stuff and they've showed us some things that are like wow we have to figure out how to do that like some terrifying things you know like I think, you know, they brought us the Hollow Man, like those original, was it the Hollow? No, the Slim, the Slender, Slender Man. Slender Man, yeah. Slender Man. Like they, many years ago when Slender Man was first kind of making it, I think Zelda or Lulu was like, dad, you got to see this little YouTube thing. And I looked at it and I was like, whoo, that's terrifying. My God. <laughs> you know what, Greg? Also, like, I mean, I know it's harder these days going in, in house to watch a movie, but, um, like some of my favorite experiences with Zelda, um, were when we would just like, would walk into a movie theater, like an art house in New York City, not knowing what we were going to see. We saw Raw that way, which is one of our favorite movies. And um, <clears throat> then you ha- then you sort of like, you've paid for the ticket. She wasn't going to be like, I don't want to see this. You just, <laughs> part of the experience is being in the theater with the popcorn. And then you have that, you can talk about that for your forevermore in our life. Like those are my favorite experiences of walking into an actual house. And I try to do that sometimes with a, with a niece and nephew as well. Because then you you tend not to leave and you're just stuck there and you really and you you go in like gung ho and game like I'm gonna dig what I'm watching. It, you know, I, I think in many ways, from if someone's going to stereotype your film, they're gonna say it's a very specified film. It, it goes to a certain aesthetic, but I, I really love how universal it was regarding the mother and daughter story. That I guess when you become a parent, you really want the best for your child, and sometimes. You just really don't want them to go out because you want to, them to hedge their bet and actually keep them safe forever. Can you guys speak to that element of of your narrative, which I found very very resonant, especially when when the third act rolls around? So, 
That's really cool. I, for me, my answer is you don't want your kids to make the same mistakes you did. However, they're going to, and it's just like, and that's just the way it is. They have to, they have to go through life. They have to become wise. No one's told what to do and gains wisdom. They have to figure it out. And that's the beauty of this. This kid makes a choice. It's not necessarily wrong. She's going with what's inside of her and she's going to have to figure it out. And yet you also can sympathize, I think, with the mother who, like you said, just wants to protect her child from from a life of loneliness and, um, you know, violence and brutality that she has known. So I like to think that, you know, it's fun when people say they have two different points of view. Some are very team Izzy, some are team mom. And I like to think that 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 possibility is there. How did you, I, I don't know, uh, I didn't read this. How did you guys find those homes? Uh, was it in your neighbor, uh, neighborhood? They're both beautiful and they just both feel like it was, it's great world building with what you guys had to work with on a, on a budget. Wait, how did we find the what? Th- those homes, those those two homes. Oh. Yeah, there's the one with the pool and the, yeah. the, the big house. And Oh, that's a great question. Well, actually, one of, one of them was a home that I was um, hired to rebuild. And we shot our, our, our previous movie, The Deeper You Dig In It. And in the deeper you dig, we were hoping as a metaphor, the house would be done at the end of the movie because it was a part of a metaphor for that movie. But it wasn't done. So anyway, it was done when we shot Hellbender and it really looked nice and it was very pure Puritan. So it really worked with these Hellbenders. There's not much art on the walls. It's like very white. And so those are houses that I worked on that that actually are in my family. And the pool one is right oh, next yeah. to it. Right. It's literally right next to it. And they're just friends of ours. And, and they're not city idiots. I mean, yeah, we, when they, they saw they're like, hey, we're not city idiots. <laughs> but it was literally a yell across, like literally yell like, hey, do you mind if we shoot today on your at your pool? She, yeah. Yell back. Sure. Could could we use your, your, your kids too? <laughs> that That is amazing. I just... Over the last decade, what kind of community have both of you built? Because I posted on my Cinematics Facebook group that I'm going to watch Hellbender. I wanted some reactions. And, and someone said, yeah, I really love their previous film. And I loved Hellbender too. And I, it's, it's great. Has it been great just growing that community over the last decade? And what has that been like been getting that feedback? It's been it's been so wonderful. I mean, we're making a new film and when you when you talk about just our local community, that itself has also grown. Like, I mean, we've always kind of used people we know, but now for this new one, it's just expanded like tenfold. Um and it's wonderful. They really support us. We enjoy Sometimes we know the perfect person just lives five miles down the road, you know, for, for this certain scene, and that you can never cast that person perfect, as perfectly. Um, and we're we're grateful to have that access. And the film community has been amazing. The horror crowd is wonderful, and they love um, they love art. Like you know, you and they they allow you to take chances in in your filmmaking and your storytelling and they want it that that doesn't mean they necessarily will like it like we definitely get a ton of criticism for what we do but people watch it and they talk about it in a really fun intellectual and inviting way so we just are very thankful that we've been accepted into the horror crowd and we really feel a part of it now it's a great family and you know we want like we want our films to stand on their own if people didn't know we were a family but most of the time they do and the fact that they have really embraced that and encouraged us to keep like Mm. you know to keep that going has been really really good for our morale and you know it's, it's super helpful 
I put I put Hellbender on my Spotify playlist. After this interview, I'm gonna go go to my my treadmill, work off some poundage, and listen to the music. How did you guys come up with? I mean, you, you could have you could have just maybe licensed a couple of songs, but you guys actually up the world stakes. How did that? Can you guys talk about the whole the whole music element to your film? And I, I thought that was very impressive, just on top of layer on top of layer. So. Well, we've been, Zelda and I have had a band since she was, well, Lulu and I had a band when Lulu was a kid, but then Lulu was like, I don't want to be in a band. And Zelda immediately was like, well, I'll be in Lulu's spot. And so then Zelda and I had a band. So we've been playing as a band since she was about five. And uh, it's changed names until recently or a couple of years ago, it became Hellbender. And, um, and then once it became Hellbender, Lulu actually wanted back into the band. And Toby was like, I want to sing too. So now we're back four of us in the band again. <laughs> it's a revolving band that like, you know, like it's kind of just like who wants to be in it at the time. It's a great time. It's a good time. Yeah. Just on a semantics level, how do you guys um, are able to raise money for your, for your films? Is it just outside investors or, you know, just on the, the uh, capital that you guys the creative capital you guys get from your films. What in general for people starting out in the, in the business, what's the key to getting financing? Is it just sometimes like you just self-finance it and just save, don't eat that gourmet cheeseburger and put it into your, the can, the can 5d or something. I don't know. Yeah. Bingo. I yeah. mean, all of our first um, six features from rumble strips, the first one through to Hellbender, have just been self-financed. Um, we've never crowdfunded. We just, whatever we had, at our, you know, fingertips, we knew, well, let's just make a, f- a film with that. I mean, and we didn't need a lot of money to, to do that because basically we were wearing every hat. And um, and there is an advantage because if you don't have a lot of money, things don't get out of hand. You really use that lack of money to your advantage, you know. And so you have to think things through about how can we do this with nothing. And it just kind of helps because it basically keeps things small and simple. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask a very naive question. A couple of last questions is me living in the city. I used to live in, in downtown LA and now I live over in the suburbs. It, can someone late mid late in their life go out and move out into the the country, out into the nature? What is, what is the key to doing that? Because as much as I say I'm a city, I, I fantasize about that, just living out in quiet. Am I thinking of a a mythic idyllic place or is there is what are the advantages of actually going from that city life suburban sprawl to something where you actually have space and other animals around you nature for me it's the peace i i we've lived in the city and at this point i just need peace and you find it here what do you think yeah i i actually like having um Nobody comes over to our house, and I like. <laughs> and when they do, they leave fast. We have like body parts out front, and it just looks like they're like, "What the hell?" Yeah, I like the isolation. I mean, the girls were were good sports. Um, they grew up both in the city and Zelda more so than Lulu in isolation, rural isolation, and she was a good sport about it. I think she too appreciated the beauty and the quiet. But now both of them chose to be – Lulu now lives in a city in South Korea and Zelda's just about to live in New York City. So there's two kids grown up in the country that are like, I'm going to the city. So, you know, and it's great. I, they're going to have a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, a couple more. I, I'm 
again, one of these, I also fantasize, fantasize about one day about being a parent. I could relate to the mom. I'm like, if I had a kid, I'd say, don't ever go to South Korea. Stay within a five foot <laughs> radius. How, do, how, how are you guys able to manage that? Is it just being mature about everything and me being too immature about that yeah, concept? From the get go, we took them, we, they just had wheels right from the start. We took them hiking. We took them everywhere we went. We, you know, people were like, you can't go here, here with the kid. And we were like, well, we're here you. now. We know we're yeah. going to go. And my dad used to call them free range chickens. He's like, "Look at those free range chickens!" And now they're big free range chickens. Blood. Yeah, and and both of Toby and I have always drifted too. We we both had parents that wanted us to drift, and so it's it's kind of like pass that nice gift on. Like, yeah, that doesn't mean we don't have sleepless nights. Like when Lulu tells me, "Hey, I'm flying to this island and then taking a boat," and all, and I'm like, "Please don't tell me all the things that you're doing. Just tell me when you get there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Last question is uh, this is probably just the most hardest question is but but from uh, both of your just can you both of you name one of your all time favorite movies and what is it about the specific film that that still resonates with you not just on a nostalgic level. I am having this like sort of new love affair with a girl walks home alone at night. Um, oh, yeah. Man, I just love that movie so much. Uh, to me, she's just got the perfect balance. You know, she, she what's great about that movie, besides that it's kind of a really kind of beautiful love story through this sort of vampiric lens, is that um, it's cool that it's, you know, spoken in Persian. And then also, um, but she's really good at showing things through symbolism rather than just telling you what you're supposed to think or what's going on. For instance, like when the, um, when the vampire and the main guy, Asha fall, are, you know, they're kind of falling in love. And then there's a scene of this um, egg, this poached egg. And the yolk is totally like intact. And he's just kind of poking it with his fork, but he's not going to burst it. It's almost like that's a way of saying, I feel so good. I'm flying from what happened last night. I don't want it to end. If I burst this, the tension is over. And I'm just like, I go gaga over it every time. Awesome, Tobe. I like it. You're smart. I can't do that. I should have answered first. <laughs> uh, mine's uh, today because every day it's different. Today, mine's going to be Goodfellas, and the reason is is because they're such good friends, all those characters, but they'll turn on each other in an instant, and I love that. I think that that's brutal and and kind of scary, and like the fact that the lead character eventually rats out all of his kind of loved friends is super dramatic and brutal to me. Thank you. And lastly, just for your next project, it, you're, you guys were talking about the community's tenfold now, and when can we expect that? Is that more like maybe a couple of years down the road? Just or oh, we're just wrapping it up. We're just filming a cut. We're we're basically. We've edited most of it. We've, we're just finishing up on the music. We've shot everything. Uh, we've worked really hard on this movie, but it's been a very fun movie that's unfolded in front of us. And we've just tried to keep up with it. It's called Where the Devil Roams. And um, we hope that in November it's a done deal. Okay. I hope to talk to you guys soon within the next year and really just really love this film. And I can't wait to devour your, your, your other works. So. Thank, you, Thank you. This was a fun conversation. Right. Thanks so Thank much. You. Thanks a lot. Have Take a care. Out. <laughs> yeah, they, I will tell Bender, of course. So, <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. I was looking at some of your past interviews, and there's something very quickly that you said that you said you, you have a tendency to write quickly. And I've never heard someone say that, and I'm, I was really pumped to actually ask you this question because – what goes into the talent of writing quickly? There, I'm sure there's a lot of thought into it, but how, that is a skill I think is is very rare. 
how did you hone that skill? Um, I really don't like to second guess too much. I think um, that is a, a crutch, which it's a hindrance, which stops a lot of people. And a lot of it's like self-doubt that's happening up here. And they don't ever get to the point of the self-doubt going away. They just like spend time with self-doubt and then they just decide to write. I just try and back myself. And then I go and I write. And often, you know, I'm like 30 scripts in now. And my the shooting drafts are often very close to what was in the first and the second draft. And I think, I don't know if it's I'm just different that way, but I think a lot of people just spend too much time second guessing. You know, there's, a, there's some boldness and genius in just starting something. Procrastination is like, it's a real Achilles heel for a lot of artists. I mean, big picture over the years from your experience as a filmmaker and writer, have you seen so many talented writers just because they can't write quickly or maybe they overanalyze themselves? They just maybe, I don't know how to put it in a kind kind of way, maybe fall by the wayside because they're so, too crippled with with self-doubt, like you were saying. Yeah. There's a saying, um, inspiration is for amateurs because pros just get up and do the work. So that's like a there's a workmanlike mentality that it comes to like professional writers where you just have to sit at your desk and do your job and inspiration may or may not come. Actually, Elizabeth Gilbert gave an amazing TED talk on inspiration and how it's an external thing which comes, not an internal thing that we have to muster up. Our job is like workmen. We just sit at our desk and we clank away. So that kind of work ethic, I think, is very important to try and um, – cultivate and get rid of the preciousness and the self-doubt and all of that. You just have to go for it. Yes. I do think that'll help a lot. Speaking of go for it. Uh, can you just talk about the aesthetic behind collide? I like that. I really enjoy the handheld aesthetic. I also love the fact that on one layer, you can enjoy this as pure entertainment, but ultimately when you break down the, um, I guess the couples or the unions in this story, they're really, it comes down to moral choices and the, and the lives that we lead. Can you just talk about that extra layer that's hidden yeah. behind your movie as well as yeah. the entertainment part? So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have always been very philosophically inclined. I lived as a monk in my twenties in India for several years. I'm fascinated by the why of everything. I'm fascinated by karma and morality and all of those things. And you know, the big questions and the big answers and the big picture, I'm interested in that. But I also understand that people don't go to the people want to be entertained. And I, this is what I've been trying to work on as I'm maturing my career is how to tell compelling, meaningful, deep, layered, nuanced stories, but do it on the framework of a thriller or an action movie like that. Because I do think that people have a lot of entertainment out there. They have very short attention spans. They don't have a capacity to concentrate very much. That's why you need to really deliver impactful and like very sexy packaging to deliver some, hopefully, some deeper, more meaningful um, content. So I'm glad that you were able to see the underneath it, because, I mean, it is. It's, it's important. Those, all those stories are not just straight-up stories of someone trying to sell a bunch of Coke, someone coming for revenge, someone's wife having an affair. You know, it's, it's all much deeper than that, and I was trying to get to those levels where people start to question, oh, you know, why do I want this revenge? What do I think it's going to give me if I get it, you know? And why is my wife having an affair? And why am I so broken by a world that seems to be always turning against me? And then why do I believe that selling 
getting all this money is actually going to change my life in any way? And we really try and ask these important questions, you know, under the guise of like a ticking time bomb and like a thriller that's really going at 100 miles an hour. So, yeah, that's a parallel track to storytelling that I think is um, – well, in movies, I think it's important to try and get both right. You know, too much spectacle and it's empty and too much meaning and it's kind of boring. So to try and get those two right is, uh, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Speaking of working on it, the, uh, the the revenge story regarding Ryan and Kat, I thought was just really layered and uncompromising regarding its conclusion. Even though you write quickly, was that part of your story hard to grow out because you could have gone so many different ways with how that i guess relationship evolved yeah. I, I would yeah so was that yeah. yeah so yeah so my wife wrote the script with me and um she's mixed race and we both come from south africa and we've seen the horrors of apartheid and um we've seen like racism's ugly face you know and so what happened when mandela got out of jail and he became prime minister him and um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu had something called the Truth and, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where they said anybody who had performed any atrocities during apartheid could come to this commission. And all you had to do was confess what you had done and ask for forgiveness, and you would have no criminal um, liability. And you would think that that's kind of like, well, is that right? You know, there should be. But it was so healing for that country and so many people just literally broke down and begged for forgiveness. And that kind of like um, acknowledgement of, of the, of truth and, and of pain and as opposed to just punishing or just justice, you to see the layered nuance of like human frail humans making mistakes, seeing the consequences of the mistakes, seeing a person being on the, on the other side of that mistake and seeing them together in a room is very, very powerful. It's very, very, um, cathartic and uplifting and uh, healing and that kind of what we wanted to show in that relationship a bit that it's nuanced you know and it's layered and one may have all great reasons and justification for hate and revenge but what is it's not good though it's not going to help you so how can you grow and and be you know uh, transcend base but understandable emotions um, yeah, so we try to tell a layered kind of version of that. I, I, I'm kind of happy with how it came out. Uh, but yes, we did try and go a little deeper than normal. I, this might be just a very obvious question, and I apologize for that. But did, did living in an ashram for several years in India directly influence your decision to go deeper as a storyteller? Did it give you a tool that maybe film school or or actually on-the-job training doesn't give you, meaning this kind of transcendent lesson about humanity and is that yeah. how yeah so anyways yeah um i mean they say write what you know or you can only really write things that you've realized or you've understood or so i do perhaps i mean i'm only interested in writing interesting stories that actually have something to say i mean i've also have a short attention span so i like to add thriller elements to these things you know so personally for me yes i mean i'm I'm 51, so that script took 50 years to write. You know, I had to live for 50 years to get to that. And I think, you know, a life experience goes into everybody's stories. And so I would encourage everybody to go and live a life if you want to be a compelling... I mean, of course, there's the art and craft of telling story, but then also what is the story you're telling? And then there's the effective way to tell that story. So 
to know the, the stories to tell, I think you do have to try and go and test yourself a little bit, try and grow, try and learn some deeper things. And I do think it will make one a stronger storyteller. I think you have another uh, movie coming out, uh, The Immaculate Room, next month as well. I've never, in my 30 years of interviewing, I've never interviewed a filmmaker, maybe Spielberg one year. But I, other than that, I think you're one of the first. What is it like to have that within the next couple of months? And on, on the flip end of that, are you very, I don't want to say precious about your work, but are you very perfectionist about your work? Like maybe I can imagine you with all these movies, maybe staying locked in in the editing room and never coming up for air because you're you're really passionate about yeah. your story? Or is it because you have life experience and you're able to breathe in a little bit and give yourself a little bit of, uh, just a little bit of time for yourself? Between, yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, for any artist to deliver his work and to show it to the world, it's a little vulnerable and you are giving something that, you know, I'm the writer and the director, you know, with my wife, but, you know, so there's a lot of authorship on the movie. So it's mine. So the ego is afraid of, you know, that. So you do a lot of that perfection, trying to be perfect, you know, the sound, the every little element, but I have learned that it's not a perfect art. You know, it's not a perfect science. It's art. And, there are so many uncontrollable elements that are actually going to make, going to break you before you fix them. And I have had experiences of pushing too hard and breaking relationships and breaking things because I just push too hard at things. So I definitely do take steps back now. I'm trying to find that balance because it's super frustrating seeing things go out there where, you know, they could have been better in some element or, but also you, you have to realize the human element here. There's only so much you can con control and trying to control things that you can't is just going to cause you great stress. Um, I'm still working on it. Uh, the two movies at the same time. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, I, that's crazy. You know, I last shot my last movie nine years ago. So and it's not as though I was on holiday for nine years. I kept on writing scripts and trying to make movies. It just so happens that, as you know, the as stars align, you have two movies coming out in the same month. So it's bizarre. I have, you have to speak to the gods about that. I don't know how that happens. You know, COVID played a role. Immaculate Room was shot two years ago. It's only being released now because of various delays. But yeah, two movies in one month in the theaters. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe this question is a little bit for myself as well. Uh, you're 51. I'm 50. When people of your friends or maybe your coworkers in the business or just colleagues, when they when they come up with a question like, well, I've lived my life just drinking caffeine and working in the business and writing and, and I don't have, there's nothing about spirituality or meditation in my life. And you, I'm sure you know these people like who are just always nervous and caffeinated the whole day. What's the first step, no matter what age, to actually say, well, maybe I might, I might uh, actually take that first step towards like maybe learning how to meditate? Is it a very simple first step from your when they ask you for that kind of advice on that other part and more important part of trying to, you know, bridge out their life in, in a better fashion? You know, this is these are not two minute answers. I, I apologize. Stuff. Yeah, no, it's fine. Last it's, question. Yeah, it's um. Well, firstly, is the person actually sincere? Is this legitimate? People have a little bit of a wobble and then they kind of, there's a saying, um, renunciation at the burning gut. So in India, they burn all the bodies at a burning gut and any and all the family members go and they watch. So when everybody's there, everybody's pious and they start to reflect on their life and they think, oh, I should change, I should do this. And then they leave the gut and then nobody. 
so a lot of people, it's just they're not actually that serious about being happy. They, they, their level of tolerance for an unhappy life is just too high. And for me, I actually really want to be happy. And I just, I really don't like being unhappy and I don't like suffering. And I want to try and reduce that. And because it's so much that I want, that I'm prepared to do a little work to get it. So you just really, you have to figure out how much unhappiness do you want to tolerate? Thank you so much for your time. That was my last question. And sure. I hope, hopefully I'll be able to interview you in about a month from now. With sure, your, with I'm your next always there. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Take care.